0: Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 <clears throat> as we come back to our, uh, our, our view of the final week of our Lord's life and almost the final day of his public ministry here as he heads uh, to the cross. And, and we come to one of the more curious uh, events in all of the Lord's life, certainly in his final week, uh, one that carries uh, uh, some questions with it, but also some important lessons for the disciples, uh, it is uh, lessons that he knew they needed to hear as he prepares to depart, if you will, not that he would ever leave them or forsake them. He would send them the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, but he himself would physically no longer be with them. And so he was well aware, even as he bore the weight of what was ahead of him in the cross, he was well aware of the duty and responsibility he had to prepare them for all of the opposition that they would face. And all of this sort of uh, sort of centers on or, or takes focus on this particular day 2,000 years ago, on this particular two-mile journey as he heads back into Jerusalem from the village of Bethany where he's been staying. All of it finds its focus on a fig tree. A fig tree that was standing alongside of the road... That he encountered with his disciples on this particular day. Now, as we will come to understand, when I say a particular day, it's really not uh, just a a moment in time, it's a 24 hour period. What we read here in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, are events that actually took place across the span of two mornings. Matthew condenses it because he's trying to emphasize a particular point, a particular lesson about prayer. And Matthew he's done this at other points throughout his gospel. He'll take events which might have uh, ex- uh, might have taken an entire day or maybe several hours, and he will condense them and compress them almost as if they happened back to back. Well, he's doing very similar thing today to, dare, to uh, here for the sake of his own purposes and his own. Emphases, but we're going to try to unpack all of this, everything that's going on here, including his emphasis on the power of prayer, through this particular episode as we go along. Before we do that, though, let me just read for us these verses that are our focus this morning, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 21. It says in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You not only will do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, all along the way, as we've been looking at Matthew 21, we've been trying to piece together the chronology of how all of these things fit together in as much detail as we can. You remember, we've already talked about this. John says that he arrived in the city six days before the Passover, which, uh, counting backwards from, from Friday the Passover would have put him in Jerusalem the previous Saturday or previous Sabbath day, we would say, which could have technically been Friday night, uh, after sundown. That's when the Sabbath day started in the mind of a, a Jew. And so he may have traveled all day on Friday from where he was staying and arrived after sundown in the village of Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or he may have traveled all day on Saturday and arrived before sundown on Saturday night. Uh, Either way, it's obvious that after he arrived in the town of Bethany, there were a number of events that took place in that town, two miles outside of Jerusalem. There was a banquet that was thrown in his honor. And then John says, the following day, people from the village heard he had arrived. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They came to hear him uh, teach and to uh, and to sort of express their their curiosity and fascination with him. And all of those things most likely would have taken at least a day, 24 hours, if not longer. And so we understand that if Jesus arrived, uh, say, on a Saturday night, he probably didn't turn around and immediately go into the city the next day. And we conclude that those events with the Sabbath and, and the, the day of rest and everything sort of calculated in there and what probably it looked like, we, we conclude that Jesus' first entry into the city probably took place on a Monday. And Mark tells us, that this was the day when he came in with all the acclaim of the crowds. They were casting their coats and their palm branches before him, making kind of a makeshift royal carpet. And this was the day that he entered into the temple. He looked around. And then Mark says he just quietly withdrew and went back out to the village. It was the next day when he entered the temple, when he would overturn the, 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 the tables of the money changers and those who were selling pigeons and doves and all those other things, which would have been obviously, Tuesday morning. Now, it's with these events in mind that we come to read what Matthew presents to us here because he presents to us in a condensed fashion what Mark tells us actually took place on two different mornings. In other words, Jesus, as he was entering into the city before he ever mounted the colt of the donkey, he saw this fig tree, And he went over to it to take some fruit from it. And having not found the fruit, he cursed the tree. But in that particular moment, nothing visible happened to the fig tree. He went on in. uh, He uh, accomplished whatever he uh, accomplished, looked around the, the temple and came back out. And then it was on the next morning when he was entering in that they noticed that the fig tree had withered. It was a 24-hour span, but still it was amazing to them the suddenness of the withering. So all of these things took place in very short succession, very short span, and for their own purposes and their own reasons. But as I said, it is, uh, it's Matthew's intent to really focus in on the particular lesson concerning prayer. But we know from Mark's uh, gospel, not to mention all the surrounding context, that the sequence of these things carried their own significance. It carried their own significance. And when we piece it all together, we can start to sort of make sense out of everything that was taking place on this particular day. Because Jesus was was doing a number of things that that you might call visible or acted out lessons. Acted out parables, if you will. Parables uh, that that demonstrated some truth through their sort of physical activity, such as entering into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, uh, demonstrating his humility and, and his offer of peace, or going into the temple and overturning the money changers, talking about his coming judgment of the temple and trying to reestablish its very purpose for the temple. And yet, as all of these things are happening, it's also very clear that the apostles don't quite connect all the dots. They don't quite understand what these things mean at this particular moment. And so their questions as they arise are primarily driven by the, by the withering of the tree, the suddenness of the, uh, of the tree. And yet, there's so much more that's embedded in what was taking place on this particular day. And that sort of can be broken down, if you will, into two key lessons that He gives to His disciples uh, beginning in verses 18 and 19 with the parable of fruitless faith that comes by means of this tree. Jesus is walking along the road. He sees this tree among all the other trees that are out there and He approaches it because we're told that He is hungry. Now, when you understand the, the sequence of what's going on, you understand that these uh, these two visits of the tree took place across two mornings, and you also understand the timing. Mark says that he entered into Jerusalem on the first visit, not in the early morning, but as it were, later in the day. When he actually gets into the temple, it's actually later in the day. He just looks around and goes home. And then you can understand why he's hungry. He probably had breakfast that morning and now it's probably midday. He hasn't eaten anything since. Uh, If we understand what what Mark tells us, that he would go out early in the morning to pray, he may have been spending several hours already that morning on the Mount of Olives praying. And now he's met up with his disciples along the road and they're making their way into the city. And it's at that point that he sees this tree and goes over to it to see if there's any fruit on it. Now, this raises all kinds of questions on people's minds. Why was he so angry when he didn't find fruit? I mean, he curses this tree. What what is it that provoked this this kind of outburst of anger? Well, I think when we understand everything, we we begin to realize that's not really what's happening here. Any more than Jesus going and overturning the money changers was some sort of uncontrolled rage on the part of Christ. He was there the evening before. He looked around and he didn't fly off the handle then. He 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 came back in a very premeditated, well-thought-out way in order to give a visual lesson to not only the disciples but everyone's watching. And very similar thing with this tree. He approaches it and he curses it, but it's not strictly because he was hungry. In fact, we know that Jesus didn't use his miraculous power in that way. He didn't use his powers to to pursue sort of personal indulgence or, or or personal gain or any of those other things. In fact, one time the tempter, you may remember, tempted him to turn stone into bread to satisfy his hunger. And of course, we know that he didn't give in to the temptation. That's not the way he responded. And so it wouldn't be Uh, it wouldn't be in keeping for him to out of just some sort of hunger uh, curse this tree because it didn't have fruit for him. Not only that, we know that he didn't use his miraculous powers for kind of trivial things along the way. They were always with intentional, well-thought-out purpose for, for teaching spiritual truths. And so, the hunger itself, that might explain you or, or me. You know, if, I'm, if I skip a few meals, I can get uh, a little bit hangry, you know, as they say. Uh, I might get cranky around the house. But that doesn't explain what's going on here with our Savior. What's going on here is the same thing that's going on with all of these other acted out parables, if you will. He approaches this tree, which stands out among every other tree that's on the horizon for one particular reason, it has leaves, which would have been uncommon at this particular point in time. We know Christ died on Friday, April the 3rd in AD 33. We count back a few days from that to this, this incident. We arrive in March 31st, which was early, very early for figs. I mean, even in our own area here. That would be very early for figs, and the same is true in Israel. And we also know that, that uh, figs uh, were harvested sometime in mid to late May. In fact, Mark is explicit. when we read Mark's gospel, uh, Mark eleven thirteen. 13, he makes the point very clear, saying, quote, now it was not the season for figs, end quote. But it still raises the question then, why, why would he curse a tree for not having figs when it wasn't even the season for figs? Why would he get so angry at a tree for not producing when it wasn't even supposed to produce? Well, the, the answer to the question really comes by, by way of Matthew's emphasis here. Because he tells us, that when Jesus went over to the tree, he found nothing on it but only leaves. It's not enough for him to say there's nothing on it. He had to say there was no fruit on it, only the leaves. Because in Israel, leaves appeared, and then soon after the leaves started to appear, the fruit also appeared on the on the tree. And so the leaves and the fruit would would uh, sort of uh, emerge together. And so when you find a tree in full leaf, then you would expect it to be full of fruit as well. Even if it's early fruit, there would still be fruit. It may not be fully ripened, but it would be edible. And there were a number of Jews who would eat these early figs. So what's really unique about this particular tree, as opposed to every other tree that they passed along the way, was that it was giving signs of fruitfulness, or signs of life, I should say. It was giving evidence that there was something going on with the tree. And it's this fact that becomes the teaching point for our Savior. The fact that the tree was giving off signs of life. It was giving off the indication that it was producing something. It was the presence of the leaves as much as the absence of the fruit that was the cause of the cursing, if you will, for this tree. Now, you can't read this, by the way, without understanding the full context of everything else Matthew has told us throughout his gospel about how often Jesus uses the image of fruit as, a, as an image of spiritual life, or we might say genuineness of faith. Jesus is very clear in this issue. He's very clear over and over again that those who have the appearance, or we might say the claim of spiritual life, but they don't have the fruit, are those who incur the wrath of God. Even earlier, he told the disciples in Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them, he says, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You don't gather figs from prickly thorns. You don't gather figs from, from uh, thistle bushes. He goes on, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit, or in some cases, no fruit. So he's telling them right off the start, don't be overwhelmed, don't be deceived by these professed believers or professed teachers or false prophets. Don't be deceived by whatever their claim is. The real issue that you must focus on is the issue of fruit, You may remember Jesus even talked about this in the terms of different soils who hear the word of God along the way in their life and the word of God lands on the soil of their heart and it might be rocky soil, it might be hardened soil, it might be some other kind of soil that may initially have some sprout of life, it might have some foliage of some sense, but if it doesn't ultimately bear fruit, it is what? It's false faith. And he tells... The uh, disciples clearly in Matthew 13, as for what is sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God and understands it and indeed bears fruit. Now, it's obvious that the disciples aren't piecing all of this together on this particular day, but they would look back on this as they're writing their gospel accounts when they piece all of this together and they would understand that this was a parable about spiritual realities spiritual truths, uh, particularly as they relate to Israel. I mean, they're truths in general. They're, they're truths that, that apply broadly to hypocritical religion, but they applied uniquely, or I should say, they uh, applied particularly to the people of Israel. And what, what's happening here is Jesus is demonstrating His contempt For those who would try to give signs of spiritual life when, in fact, their life is fruitless. They give foliage. They give things that would try to convince people that they have spiritual life. But on closer examination, their lives are spiritually barren. Now, as I said, Israel exemplified this. They had all the outward trappings. They had obviously the temple. They had the priesthood. They had all the sacrificial system, which Jesus was getting ready to go in and And uh, sort of disrupt that morning. They had the feast. They had the festivals. They had the scribes. They had the synagogues all over the place. They had the oral law. They had the regulations. They had their dietary restrictions. They had their circumcision. They had all of these things which sort of marked them out in the most distinct way as as a distinct people for God. And they, of course, promoted these things and paraded these things. They were filled with... With religious claims and religious activity, foliage, if you will. And it might have been impressive to some people, but Jesus knew that on critical examination, it lacked one serious component fruit. Real spiritual fruit. This was, in fact, a a common image for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Israel was pictured a number of times by the Old Testament prophets as a tree or a vine in some sense, but not producing anything. One particular prominent example was in Isaiah chapter 5, which pictures Israel as a vineyard that was being cared for by the the sort of loving and protective care of a devoted uh, vineyard keeper. And he was, he was very meticulous, he was very generous, he was very astute in what he was doing, and so he built not only hedges around this so that, so that uh, critters couldn't get in, he built a wall so that there wouldn't be any kind of uh, creeping, uh, you know, uh, thorns or, or, or other weeds that might make their way into his vineyard. He dug out the necessary trenches and the irrigation. He pulled out all of the stones and, and rocks and impurities out of the soil. He planted his vineyard. He watered it thoroughly every day. He gave all of the care and love that any vineyard keeper would ever need to give in order to produce fruit. But unfortunately, the exact opposite happened. In spite of all of the, of the commitment of generosity and care and attention This vineyard still produced rotten fruit. And of course, this becomes an image of God, becomes an image of God's love, his care and his His protection over Israel that in spite of all the grace that he has shown, in spite of his earnest desire that Israel be fruitful and produce, in spite of everything that he had bestowed on them in terms of all the blessings that he had given uh, for them, instead of producing anything worthwhile, all they produced was wretched, wretched sin. All they produced was bloodshed in some cases, immorality in other cases, vileness in some cases, self-centeredness, pride, arrogance. That's all they produced. And of course, this brings heavy consequences because God declares then his intent with this particular vineyard To tear down its walls, to uproot its hedges, to absolutely allow it to be abandoned, left desolate, surrendering it to be overrun by thorns and briars. And although he says this will not be the final end, although he says that that he still has a purpose for the vineyard, for the time being, the vineyard has been uh, subject, if you will, to his punishing judgment. And over and over again, that's been the history of Israel. Over and over again, God has given them up to his own wrath and to his own judgment. They have suffered even to today where you have Jews in the promised land who have all of their sort of, uh, uh, you know, orthodoxy and all of their religion. They still have been subject to God's hand of judgment over and over again. And Israel will continue in that state all the way up until that generation that God chooses to work when he finally and fully raises up a generation of Jews who repent and turn to Christ in true faith. But in the meantime, they are an overrun vineyard. They're a worthless, fruitless, barren, polluted vineyard. And of course, Jesus understands that even in his own day, that's going on. They might have completed this grandiose temple that they're all so proud of. They, may, they might have the most glorious sort of spectacle in all of the near East there and yet he would not be duped by all of that external display he wasn't going to be overwhelmed by the grandeur of all of their activity and he didn't want his disciples to misread or misjudge any of this either he didn't want them to be duped by all of this stuff And he didn't want them to be intimidated whenever he's no longer around by the religious display of these hypocrites who are the self-proclaimed power brokers of Israel's spiritual life. He wanted them to understand this critical lesson that while others might put out their leaves to impress you, well, you need to look for the fruit. Because if they're not producing fruit, no matter how much acclaim they may give themselves. They are facing the judgment of God. They're facing the curse of God. He will, just like every other unbeliever, he will chop them down and he will cast them out to be burned in the fire. Now, this isn't just a, a problem here with the apostles. This, was, this is an ongoing problem with churches. I mean, all of us need to hear this warning. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve with his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived and that you'll be drawn away from what God really cares about, which is a genuine and sincere and unmixed devotion in your heart, he says, because there are false apostles, there are deceitful workers, there are those who are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so, it's no surprise if Satan's serpents, uh, servants, I should say, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond to their deeds. So, Paul's saying, guess what? People are going to disguise themselves. They're going to disguise themselves as true Christians. They're going to disguise themselves as servants of God. They're going to disguise themselves as having some sort of spiritual life. But if you examine their deeds, if you examine their heart, you will see the same spiritual barrenness, the same spiritual barrenness that you would find in any other believer. Paul tells the Colossians, In Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one take away from you or diminish or steal from you your spiritual standing. Let no one disqualify you, he says, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their own sensuous mind. In other words, all this foliage. Let no one come in and start boasting to you about all the ways that they sacrifice and all the ways that they sort of, sort of deny themselves or, or serve God or have all these visions and all these experiences. Let no one come and wow you with all of their foliage, he says. Because as he goes on to say, these indeed had the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there's no fruit. They have all of the show, but they have no fruit Underneath all the camouflage, underneath all the leaves, they still operate by the same unregenerate flesh as everyone else around them. There are numerous examples, obviously, throughout the Scripture, numerous examples even in our own experience, of those who would try to silence the criticism of others or even intimidate certain people... By some claim of spiritual religion, by some display of external activity, they attend church. They'll tell you how they pray. They'll mention the Bible verses they know. They know. They'll do whatever they do. They might tell you about their good works and how they helped someone along the way. But there's no spiritual power. There's no distinction between their heart. In the heart of an unbeliever, it is governed just as much by the self centeredness, just as much by the pride, just as much by the deceit and the lies, just as much by the rebellion against God's lordship, just as much by the disrespect for their parents, just as much by the lust, just as much by the greed. There's no difference. There's no difference. There's no fruit underneath the foliage. And so as Jesus understands, he's about to depart. And these disciples have got to understand this. They cannot be wowed. They cannot be swayed. They cannot be duped by the empty, barren life of any tree, no matter how alive it may claim to be. They need to look for true spiritual fruit, true signs of a transformed heart. Now, unfortunately, this goes right over their heads. They seem to not at all clue in to any of this sort of acted out parable. They don't have any questions about the lack of fruit or what the expectations are or any of those other things. Instead, they zero in on one particular dynamic. The fact that this tree died so quickly. They'll, they'll get the lesson later on, but right now their focus is just on the suddenness of the withering. And like I said, it, it wasn't like an instant, but the next day, whenever they walk back by that same pathway... What they saw was that fig tree, and it wasn't as if the leaves had started to yellow or even turn brown. They had fallen off the tree. And Luke, uh, Mark says that it had, it had withered all the way down to its root. The, the very life of the tree, the very, the very bark was evidently dried out. So the suddenness of this strikes them. And they see it, the withered tree, and they marvel at it. In fact, Mark tells us that it was Peter who speaks up and says, Rabbi, look, the tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus responds to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what's been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it's not real clear why they're struggling to understand. They had seen Jesus curse the tree. They had seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles in his ministry. They had seen him raise the dead just a few weeks earlier. In a few hours, he will be in the temple healing more lame people and more blind people. It's a little unclear why they, why they were confused. It could be the fact that they've never seen Jesus use his miraculous power to destroy something, only to produce, only to heal, except for maybe some pigs, the herd of swine where he cast uh, demons into them and they, and they ran over the cliff. But apart from that, everything they had seen Jesus use his power for had always been for the purpose of, of, of producing and the purpose of healing and creating. But this was different. And so maybe, maybe they're a little uncertain in that way. But regardless of what is causing their questions, Jesus sees another opportunity here to teach them a second important lesson on the power of faithful prayer the power of faithful prayer. And he emphasizes to them that there should be no doubt in their minds about the limitations of God's power. And truly, he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, then you could do something like I just did with this tree. In their their faith and in their prayers, If they resist the temptation to doubt. Now, just to be clear, what is doubt? Doubt is the opposite of faith, isn't it? Doubt is, we might say, a reliance on one's own senses rather than on the Lord. It is a reliance on what you see and what you hear. It's a reliance on what you think you can accomplish in your own strength Not in the Lord. That's doubt. The verb Jesus uses here is actually diakrino. It literally means to make a distinction or to judge between two things. You have two things. You have a judgment to make between two things. You have a judgment to to believe in yourself or to believe in the Lord. That is doubt. One writer says, doubt reflects man's dividedness of attitude when confronted with the promise of God. It happens when the authority of God's Word comes in conflict with your own self-reliant authority. When it comes in conflict, when... When you think that it might not be possible for God to accomplish or perform what he says. And so instead of relying on what he thinks and what he says, you rely on what you think and what you say. Or as James says, he defines it the best in James 1, six: The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, so this is the divided attitude between whether you can trust God or whether you can trust yourself. That's the battle of authority. Who has final authority to define what's going to happen Or what you should believe. Is it God or is it you? Whose authority are you going to put your trust in in a trial? No one likes a two-faced person. Somebody who says one thing at one point and another when you're not around. And Jesus doesn't, God doesn't like a two-faced person, a double-minded person. Somebody who will show up here on a Sunday and put on a show as if they believe and and uh, trust in the power of the Lord. They'll sing about His great power. They'll pray uh, as if they are trusting in His great power. But then they go and they leave out of here and immediately, what is their reliance on? It's not on God's power. It's on their own senses, on their own perspective, on their own authority, on what they can accomplish. God doesn't like a double-minded man, a two-faced person, someone who, who uh, is not clear about what they think or whom they believe, whom they trust. And James is making the, the distinction very clear in James chapter 1. That The challenge is for you to believe that in the midst of whatever trial you're in, that the character of God is consistent. In fact, he talks about God not having any variation or shifting shadow. As if God was projecting something whenever you're reading the Bible stories, but whenever you're living real life, he's something different. He's got a shifting shadow. In fact, he says that you have to come not doubting that God gives generously and without reproach. That is to say that God is not trying to fool you whenever he invites you to come and to ask him for help. You might think of that as the image of God in your mind. You might have that defective view of God. You might have this idea that God has some sort of clenched fist when you're coming to him. But James tells you that's not the case. He has no favoritism. He makes no discrimination. He gives to all generously and he does not reproach. Back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told his disciples, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, if you even know how to do good things and be kind and be generous, how much more, how much more will your righteous Father do that? And so he tells his disciples, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, it will be open. And James says you have to come to God not doubting any of this, not thinking that he's going to reproach you, or one one translation says not thinking that he's going to hesitate. There's no hesitation When you come to God, he's not quietly thinking in his mind, oh, you again? Didn't you just ask this yesterday, last night, this morning, last week? Haven't you asked this a hundred times and I haven't answered? Haven't you got the message yet? That's not the way God responds. That might be the way that you and me, that might be the way that we respond. We kind of maybe evaluate life that way. We deal with people based on whether or not we judge them to have been recently worthy or unworthy of our help. But he doesn't respond that way. He doesn't heap insults upon you for asking for help. He doesn't try to get you to rehearse all the ways that he's already given to you He doesn't resent you. He doesn't scold you. Somebody might come to you, even somebody you love might come to you asking for something and and you might be tempted to say, well, didn't I just give you something yesterday? Didn't I just give you something last week? And you might want to give them some sort of lecture. You might want to scold them, reproach them, upbraid them. James says God doesn't do that. There's no reproaching. He doesn't give you some lecture about how you're not worthy of this. He is generous. And James says you have to approach him not doubting that. You have to approach him not doubting that. You can't have this double-minded mentality divided in your perspective on God Divided in the way that you think about him. There's only one way to think about him. And the only way to think about him is he is overwhelmingly, abundantly generous. Eager, eager to give. Jesus, of course, gives all of this in the image, in a sort of exaggerated image to drive home the same point. He says, not only could you say something like this to a fig tree, but you could say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it'll happen. This is just one of those sort of exaggerated statements that Jesus uses over and over again, like when he talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle. That was sort of an exaggeration, a hyperbole, hyperbole but to drive home a point. Like there's nothing so big that you should not ask it. There's nothing Too big for God to do or too big for you to ask. That's the point. It's not that God automatically gives you whatever you voice to him. That's not the point of the the statement here. The statement is if you come in faith and not doubting, in other words, come in faith with the absolute confidence in God if you come with the right thoughts about God, then he's going to respond. Now, this is expressed other ways throughout the pages of Scripture. First John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And you're like, oh, there it is. This is I mean, I don't know if it's his will. I mean, his will might be for me to suffer His will might be for, you know, me to just sort of be quiet and sort of take my lumps. His will might be whatever. That's that's always the problem. I don't know what His will is. But here's the critical thing you have to focus on is not that statement, but you have to really focus on the confidence in Him. This is the confidence we have in Him, the lack of doubt that we have in Him, that whatever He says, whatever He commands... Whatever he dictates is the right and good and perfect thing because we know God. We know his character. In fact, John said it earlier in 1 John 3, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You see, you see the connection there? The reason that you have this confidence, the reason that you come without doubt isn't because you're not doubting him Only in this particular request, it's because you don't doubt God at all. You don't doubt any command He's given you in Scripture. You don't doubt any word that He's given you to follow. You don't doubt anything. You trust Him. You trust His word. You trust His authority. You're not double-minded and divided about what you think about God. And so whatever He decides, whatever He says, whatever He does... You are fully confident in Him. And so you come and you make your request and that confidence just bleeds over into it. It bleeds over into it. So you go to God with this kind of confidence, willing to do whatever He says. You carry that same kind of attitude over into all of your life as you're bringing with this request. The only thing you want Him to answer are prayers that would please Him. Because you're absolutely confident that his way is the right way. And so we pray with that spirit. Not doubting anything that he says. But willing to follow any of it. And at that point Jesus says your prayers can start to accomplish amazing things. Amazing. Amazing things. Now for the disciples that that may very well mean overcoming some sort of opposition it might it might mean religious authorities who have tried to lock them in prison silence their testimony intimidate them with all of their prestige or whatever it might be and they can pray against that the same way that jesus prayed against this fig tree It could be something else. I mean, who knows what the trial is or the obstacle or the challenge in your life. It doesn't really matter. The thing that matters is when you come to God, are you absolutely united in your mind about His character, about His power, about His eagerness to show His love to you? When you come that way, Jesus says then you are prepared for whatever the Lord has for you. You are prepared to be used by Him. And you're not going to be spiritually barren. You're not going to be someone who just simply talks about the mighty God that you serve. You're going to be the person who lives it. You're going to be walking it out. You're going to be pursuing righteousness. You're going to be pursuing the fruits of the Spirit. You're going to be pursuing purity and honesty and integrity and humility because those are the things that the Lord tells you to pursue and you absolutely trust Him. And when there's a difficulty, you still trust Him. You go to Him in prayer, you ask Him, and you just believe He's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you. These are lessons they needed to know. They're lessons that you and I need to know. The lessons that we need to hear because we are in the same boat. We can still ourselves be duped as to what true spirituality is all about. It's not about putting on the foliage. It's not about putting on the show. It's about true, genuine, sincere faith. Confidence in God. Confidence that never doubts him in anything. Father, we pray for those who are here today who who don't have any level of that confidence in God. To, To them, He is nothing but a show. Something that they can impress other people with. But their life is barren. And they know it's barren. Underneath all of the leaves, there is a fruitlessness that is indistinguishable from any other unbeliever. I pray for them today that they would, they would understand the grief. They would understand the offense that that is to you. And that they would understand the curse that they're under. No matter how many people they impress, they are facing your hand of judgment. And I pray for them. I pray that they would set aside all of their hypocrisies and duplicity and that they would come to you with a sincerity of faith that truly knows that your way is the way of truth. For us, Lord, who have come to see that, help us to walk in it ourselves with genuine, bold, and confident faith so that there is no, no, in any way, distinction between our professed faith and the lives of trust that we walk out every day. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.